0: The thing which really changes uh, him and gives him a totally new direction, which really was not foreseen uh, in, the, um, in the earlier period, is France goes to war in 1792, goes to war with the rest of Europe, uh, with first Austria, Hungary, then England, everyone else just about 1792, 1793. And the war goes badly. And the war goes badly all sorts of reasons. France is in a mess. The the army is in an absolute mess. Most of the officer corps have actually emigrated. They're nobles. They They don't want to have anything to do with the revolution. They emigrate to Germany.
1: Hi, everyone. This is AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books Podcast, where I interview today's best authors, writing about war-related topics. Today, I'm extremely excited to have on the show Colin Jones for his new book, The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris. Colin is Emeritus Professor of Cultural History at Queen Mary University of London and Visiting Professor at the University of Chicago. He has published widely on French history, particularly the 18th century, the French Revolution, and the History of Medicine. His many books include The Great Nation, France from Louis XV to Napoleon, Paris, Biography of a City, Versailles in the Fall of Robespierre, which we are talking about today. Uh, He is a fellow of the British Academy and past president of the Royal Historical Society. Colin, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing very well, thank you. Yes, I'm um, interested to hear what the questions you have to ask me about uh, the book.
1: Absolutely. Well, very excited to have you on. So this will. So we're recording in 2023, but this will actually be the first episode of 2024 that uh, that comes out in January. Now, if we were talking the revolutionary calendar, well, it's not January. What what month is January on the revolutionary calendar?
0: Well, the the months actually start because the um, the calendar itself was set up in 1793, but it was set up so that uh, it was thought it was made to originate on the day that uh, the French National Assembly declared itself, France, to be a republic. And that was the 21st of uh, of uh, September 1792. Uh, the king had been overthrown, King Louis XVI had been overthrown in August. Uh, and so the months actually started on the 21st. So uh, the calendar that they introduced uh, gave a sort of meteorological, climatic feel uh, to each of the months, and so the middle of the, well December it's like uh, was Nevis, uh, like which attaches to the word neige, which is snow. So it's the sort of snowy month. Okay. And the uh, on the other extreme, um, you know, the middle of summer, which is the de- the day on which uh, Robespierre was overthrown was the ninth of Thermidor, and Thermidor, obviously, is the hot month. It's the hottest month of, of, of the year. So it, it has been pointed out that this allegedly universal new calendar for the human uh, humanity only really operated uh, properly in the northern hemisphere because, of course, all those weather uh, details would be wrong for the southern. But uh, this is the way the, the revolution has tried to think about uh, the revolution that they were undertaking. They saw it really as an epochal event in the history of humanity.
1: Yeah, well, um, we will we'll dive into that. Um, what did you say the, the month for January was? You said it's Nivovitz. N I V M S A, yeah. All right, so this is going to be coming out of Nivovitz. Before we actually start talking about your book, I have to ask you, because I have a historian, a French history on the show right now. Um, talking about the revolutionary era, did you see the Napoleon movie? I haven't yet. You I haven't.
0: Have, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. And uh, a very good friend of mine, who's a very distinguished uh, historian of the French Revolution, he said to me, "C'est magnifique mais ce n'est pas l'histoire." In other words, it's magnificent, but it is not. It is not history. Uh, so I think I'm going to be. Uh, I am always a bit of a skeptic about historical films, and I, I think it's. A sort of professional def- deformation that you can't watch a history film without sort of seeing mm-hmm. things that are, anach- are anachronistic or you think are wrong or whatever. But it is, I mean, I have heard very positive things about it. So I'm looking forward to it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought, I mean, as far as like being like an action filled movie, I thought it was very, very, very interesting. Uh, not to spoil too much for you, but the the scene where uh, Robespierre uh, shoots himself is dramatized in the movie. So, if any viewers or listeners out there have seen the movie, um, that's what we're talking about here today. Well, let's 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 start off then talking about your book. One of the questions that I like authors to answer first when they come on my show is, if in your own words, can you tell me what is your book about?
0: Yes. Well, it's about a day, and it's a very particular way of uh, writing the history of the day. We'll we'll talk about it. But it was a key day, a crucial day, in the history of the Revolution. And so often, historians uh, write about the Revolution in terms of these really major turning points. And there's like three or four of them, uh, really, which, which usually are the pivots around which the story is told. And the first of those is obviously the 14th of July, 1789. It's still commemorated as the French National Day. And that was the day that the Bastille was overthrown and the monarchy accepted that it had to have a constitution and there would be a constitutional monarchy. The next day is uh, the 10th of August, uh, 1792, and that is the day on which uh, the monarchy was overthrown, so everything changed as a result of that. And then the fa- the, the, the final one, if I skip over uh, my one, if you like, would be the 18th of Brumaire in uh, year 8, which is in fact 1799, and that's the day in which uh, Napoleon, performed his famous coup d'etat throughout the directory form of government and instituted the consulate which then became the empire and all the rest of it. But of those three dates the fourth, just as important in some ways uh, uh, equally important, definitely equally important is the 9th of Thermidor year 2 which is the 27th of uh, July uh, 1794 and that was the day that uh, Robespierre was overthrown Robespierre was an absolutely crucial figure in the uh, a period uh, prior to that, which is often called the terror. And the Ninth of Thermador begins a movement away from the terror uh, and away from the more radical policies and extreme policies associated with the revolution in 1793 to, uh, to 4. So it's one of the turning points. Uh, and therefore, you know, when I was looking around for a subject, uh, I wanted to work on the revolution a few years ago. I had a sort of interest in doing that. Uh, I thought, well, this 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 is a really important day. People know of it. They know, certainly, well, everyone who knows anything about the revolution uh, knows about um, uh, uh, Robespierre. So I'll, I'll work on that. And it is, and this is one of the things that attracted to me, me. And I'll sort of give you a brief indication of what the book is about. Is that basically it's the day on which most of Paris gets together and overthrows the uh, uh, one of the principal figures in the uh, revolutionary government, which was ruling France and uh, 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 conducting, managing uh, the terror throughout France. And it's a very dramatic day, which um, I'll break down in in any way you want in a a minute. But basically, it starts with Robespierre being shouted down in the National Assembly uh, and arrested. But then he's sent out to a prison and while he's sent out to a prison, Paris or the, the Paris uh, municipality, the, the commune, the city hall, tries to organize a uh, an insurrection uh, against the National uh, Assembly. It's helped by the fact that Roger actually escapes or isn't allowed into uh, the prison. And so you have this very dramatic evening of uh, 27th of July, 1794, where the National Assembly, uh, and the uh, the forces, the armed forces that it can bring together, is, is in a face off with the city hall, uh, about two kilometers, mile and a half down the uh, road towards the east of uh, Paris. Uh, and the revolution uh, and the fate of the revolution is counting absolutely on what happens from that uh, that conflict. In the end, uh, I mean, we all know uh, uh, it goes the way of the National Convention, Robespierre, and his supporters in the city uh, hall are arrested. Uh, Many of the lead Russia, his supporters in the National Assembly, a small group, uh, and about 100 uh, people within the city hall's uh, management are executed on the uh, following day.
1: Well, first, let me just say I'm impressed that, so your book is just about 24 hours, and um, it's about 600 pages, and I'm impressed that that you've been able to, did you think, were you wondering am I going to have enough material to (laughs) to fill this up or was there just so much going on that you're like i could i could double this this size
0: yeah it's interesting you say that because uh there aren't many days in history in which you could write a history quite like this which was so focused and i think it is certainly for the 18th century uh and arguably more than that it's one of the best documented days in uh certainly in the revolution certainly in the 18th century and uh, possibly more widely than that And that is because it was seen as an absolutely crucial day. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, it's a sort of uh, light bulb day, like uh, the assassination of JFK or the death of Elvis. People always think what I was doing on that particular day. Many people write uh, write memoirs. But also there was an official inquiry into what went on. And this is a bit like the Warren Commission after the uh, Kennedy assassination, which is very, very detailed. And then also because it was such an important day in terms of what people felt and uh, what they did on the day, whether they had supported Rothbard or not, it was um, many people over the next year or so uh, would be arrested, thrown into prison, and made to say what they had done and what they had been up to on that particular day. So we have this extraordinarily uh, dense documentation at a very, very granular uh, level. And so when I, you know, I thought I'd go into the history of the uh, day, I, I didn't really realise the extent to which uh, one could get this incredibly granular material on what just private individuals who are caught up in the uh, in in the action. Obviously, the actors themselves, the main protagonists as well, but just normal people in the streets, in the bars, you know, in the gardens, etc., get caught up in this and give very very um, precise and detailed accounts of of what they did and what happened and what they saw and what they heard. And so you've got these hundreds and hundreds, literally hundreds, probably a thousand or more, micro narratives of part of the day, uh, which uh, some of them, you know, giving uh, a lot of detail over a long period, some of them just a particular episode. And so my job as a historian of the day was to try and do justice to the the density of that material uh, and give a sense of, you know, what the revolution felt like for those who who were in, engaged in it you know on this particular day and it was a very uh, big big day in which a lot of people were involved but also the people who, who who witnessed it in some way as well
1: yeah well before we get to the the ninth of thermidor which is the 27th of july 1794 uh i want to talk a little bit about robespierre the person what kind of person was robespierre what was his background um, what was he doing right before? I think you write he was just kind of an obscure lawyer right before the revolution. What's kind of his story?
0: Well, you know, um, French historian, uh, historian of ideas, uh, uh, Marcel Gaucher, re- recently wrote a, a biography of uh, Robespierre, an intellectual biography, and he called it the, the man who divides us most. And I think that says something rather important about Robespierre. He's the sort of person... He would say in England we have this expression: "He's a marmite candidate." Marmite is a, a, something spread on bread. Um, some people absolutely love it; the rest of the population absolutely hate it. It's one of, he's, he sort of divides people enormously. So, asking what he's like, you know, it's quite difficult. But there's there's the two versions uh, of it really. But. Um, the, the, the sort of bad, bad picture, the sort of black legend of Robespierre is that he is a proto-totalitarian dictator. He's the sort of Mussolini, Hitler, whoever of the late 18th century who is dictating the revolution. Everyone is frightened of, uh, and who is uh, running a reign of terror. Who sort of sorted out the the guillotine, who's just trying to destroy anyone who's getting in his way and is it, and trying to establish a, a, a dictatorship, a, a dictatorship of virtue, because he talks a lot about Republican uh, uh, virtue, that is a, a caricature which was um, really generated particularly after he fell. People people exaggerated uh, many of his uh, qualities, so we need to. It's difficult to get to, to him without getting through the sort of incredible amount of bad propaganda, the bad press that it, that he's had. But if one tries to do that, let me give you a few indications. One of them is that if there hadn't been a revolution, we would never have heard of Maximilian Robespierre. Um, a few. Uh, obscure historians of the 18th century, such as myself, might have heard about this minor provincial lawyer who seems to have been a bit of an intellectual and was keen to write uh, some reforming, enlightened prose about justice and all the rest of it. He was working in a minor provincial town, the city of Arras in Picardy, and uh, he'd been educated in, in Paris. But in 1789 he's elected to the Estates General, which is the which becomes the national assembly essentially, uh, when as the revolution go, go, goes goes on and which uh, tries to um, uh, which really reforms and uh, revolutionises French uh, government and uh, in every way, uh, he's elected to that, and in that assembly he becomes known as a defender of the people. he's always supporting the popular uh, cause. Honestly, you know, sometimes people said that, I know about Elvis Presley, they say, you know, that his death was a good career move. In fact, I think for Robespierre, if he had died in 1792, not 1791 or 92, people would say, "Oh, he was the future of the revolution. It's a great tragedy. He was a radical man. He seemed to support the good causes. He totally believed in all the freedoms of the individual, right to speak, uh, religious uh, freedom. No, no uh, imprisonment without trial. He was even against capital punishment. He was one of the few in the assembly who spoke very passionately about the importance of abolishing capital punishment. So interesting. in terms of what went what came, uh, came next. He was the sort of thing I say to um, to colleagues in England or friends in England. I say he was the sort of person who was a guardian reader, all those sort of like left, left liberal, wishy-washy sort of qualities we all we all believe in uh, uh, now. But in 1791-92, he's um, he moves out of the assembly. They have a new assembly. He then goes back into it in 1792. But the thing which really changes uh, him and gives him a totally new direction, which really was not foreseen uh, in the um, in the earlier period, is France goes to war in 1792, goes to war with the rest of Europe uh, with first Austria-Hungary, then England, everyone else just about in 1793, and the war goes badly, and the war goes badly for all sorts of reasons, France is in a mess, the, the army is in an absolute mess, most of the officer corps have actually emigrated, they're nobles, they go, they, they don't want to have anything to do with the revolution, they emigrate to Germany, uh, they're led by the uh, princes of the Blood, the King's Brothers, who start forming an army uh, on the frontiers of uh, France in Germany. Uh, and they they cooperating with the uh, the uh, uh, allied armies of Austria and Prussia, in, in particular. That is a fantastic pressure on on France, and particularly as the King and um, the Church in particular as well, which uh, the Catholic Church, which uh, uh, which has been reformed, but this has produced a division within the Church. Uh, there's a sort of civil war going on in, as well in 1792, 1793. And Robespierre has the perspicacity, perhaps other people would have seen this as well and grasped this, they probably would. But he, his his view is that the only way that France is going to survive and not be picked off by those powers and partitioned and you know reduced to the uh, uh, a shadow of its former self would be by what he says is to rally the people. Uh, so, in other words, what he tries to do is to introduce social reforms, radical social reforms, which will give people the incentive to fight for the fight for the uh, uh, revolution, to to volunteer for the army, uh, and, and so on. And this is not a necessarily popular throughout the political uh, class, political elite in 1793-4. And indeed, it's only imposed as he, as Ro- Robespierre and a group of uh, individuals within the National Assembly. Develop their policies and and actually exclude uh, from, the, uh, from the from the from uh, the national assembly and also uh, within Paris as well critics of the government. So there's a very strong authoritarian but also so- socially radical set of policies which uh, he yeah. brings in. Afterwards, they don't use this expression much at the time. Actually, the, the people say this is the terror with a capital T. People talk about terror, which is. What they're trying to do to be, to to have a very authoritarian government where people are frightened, if you like, of opposing the government, but also they want to policies that will incentivize people to fight for the uh, revolution. And indeed, it is successful. You know, the um, the armies of uh, France in 1793 too are in an absolute mess. You know, they they, they go in retreat. Uh, France is nearly overrun on a number of uh, occasion seventy ninety two ninety three but by by giving this sort of incentive to people to join up and to fight for the revolution they 're able to put in the field a very very large army uh, you know probably we 're talking about well, well over a million uh, ma- adult males at the, this time. 14 armies scattered on all all the frontiers of France, fighting on absolutely front every every frontier, and indeed they do succeed, and they also bring the civil war, particularly in the west of France, under control, and then they they basically force out the Allied troops who were on French territory in 1793 and particularly 1794, and just before the and I think it's an important element in the, uh, in understanding the day of 27th of July ninth 9th of Thermidor, in June uh, late uh, June, the Battle of Fleurus uh, on the northern uh, frontier is a very, very successful uh, victory which really m- means France does not at threat of invasion uh, anymore and indeed Belgium and indeed the Netherlands are opening themselves up to, 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 to invasion. So I think those sort of Background factors are very important, and Rob Speer, you know, he in some ways, you know, all his career before he joins the government in 1793 has been the sort of popular supporter, supporter of the people and whistleblower against power. He's then brought into power, but he isn't, you know, as people say, he isn't really a dictator in the sort of eight, uh, 21st, uh, 20, 21st century sense. This government policy is being directed by a group of 12 men who are elected by the National Assembly, the so-called Committee of Public Safety, and he is one of 12 who is doing the stuff. You know, he, he is he's not even primus inter pares in some ways, not outstanding in any way. He says himself, I'm one twelfth of the authority of the uh, of the government. What he is, however, and this is the important part of his character. Is he is the ideologist of revolutionary government. He's the man who does the big speeches in the National Assembly and the Jacobin Club. Is then diffused within France, and they give a sort of sense of what the revolution is fighting for. Uh,
1: so and his colleagues the face. respect
0: him for that. They see him as someone who's he's called the incorruptible, the incorruptible, the, yeah. the virtuous uh, uh, guy who actually will get people out on the uh, on the battle lines, if you like, and the barricades. Uh, if necessary, to fight for the, for the revolution.
1: Now, was that was that true that he was incorruptible? Is there any historical evidence that he was we corruptible?
0: Have, we have no real evidence that he was corrupted in any particular <laughs> okay. way. Uh, whereas a lot of the other revolutionaries, they, they see the um, the material benefits of um, of the revolution uh, and uh, benefit from it. I mean, famously. His, one of his big rivals in, in government in 1793-4, and uh, who actually he, he helped to the guillotine, Danton. Danton's extremely corrupt. Danton is the sort of guy who likes the revolution for all the right, you know, radical reasons, but actually doesn't mind lining his pockets along, along the way. has always been the person who stands above uh, that and he presents himself in a way which again divides people. Some people think he's an incredible hypocrite, but he's very austere. He's very pure. He's very puritanical uh, in, in many ways. He, he doesn't—he doesn't drink much. <laughs> he doesn't eat much even. He always seems to be someone who's totally dedicated to the revolution. And indeed, and it's a, it's a sort of aspect of his character which I think uh, you could see as both and also virtue he identifies with the revolution and identifies with the people of france in a very very striking way he once, at one stage says he says in French, france i am i am the people i am of the people if you like i'm 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 one of the one of the people uh uh, uh if you like uh, and that type of identification which funnily enough we becomes a bit of a thing in French history, when you think of Napoleon, uh, you think of Charles de Gaulle, etc., etc., a sort of providential leader, uh, uh, if you like, uh, but someone who has these qualities of, um, of um, devotion, dedication to the popular cause of the revolution, which are very, very striking.
1: So when would you, when would you say Robespierre was, um, two questions, one, when would you say Robespierre was at the height of his power? And the second question is, the day right before the 7th of Thermidor, so I guess 6th of Thermidor, July twenty-six. if I was sitting down and I was, let's say I was having coffee with Robespierre, what would I come away with from that conversation? Yeah.
0: The, the, the two questions are very, go together rather well, actually, because I would say that Robespierre was at the height of his power. He's at the most respected uh, he's seen as the, uh, the a key figure uh, in um, the way in which the government is working, and he's seen as someone who's bringing the revolution success. Probably about two or three months before uh, uh, this, in in March and April, he, he personally sort of supervises uh, first of all a purge of the uh, government of the of, of Danton, his rival, uh, and some of the people who are associated with him. Uh, who have been calling for a moderation of the terror. At the other extreme, he actually uh, eradicates from political life, many go to the guillotine, people on the sort of far left, who he sees as, again, threatening uh, uh, the revolution. And he thinks that that he's getting, he's called the war against faction. He thinks he gets rid of these factions, everything will be above board and there will be uh, no problem. But he soon realizes, in fact, that in some ways he's made matters worse, that there's more faction and there's more resentment against him uh, by people on both the left and right uh, uh, because they, they feel that he's gone too far in, in, in uh, attacking uh, uh, fellow revolutionaries. And then he realizes that something is going wrong. And um, about six weeks before the, um, the night of Thermidor, he, he stops going to the Committee of Public Safety. Uh, where, you know, they're conducting, they're running a war. It's an incredibly active uh, sort of uh, set of people running this uh, incredible war against the rest of Europe. He stops going there. He stops going to the national convention. So he just uh, doesn't show up. He doesn't make any speeches. And people are puzzled about this, obviously. But he does go to the Jacobin Club. And the Jacobin Club is a sort of political association, uh, a political club, which is uh, seen as the, the most important one in, in, uh, in the whole of... Um, uh, the revolution it has a network of clubs, jacobin clubs throughout France, but the Parisian one obviously is the really important one. Politicians are there, but also normal Parisians as well. So he goes to the uh, jacobin club very regularly still, and he makes speeches of very, which are very, very critical about the government, of which he formally is still part. You know, he's sort of attacking the, the government. He's sort of uh, uh, casting aspersions uh, 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 against uh, his colleagues within the National Assembly. And this really, I think this is where his power is, the power which and respect which he's commanded, I think, uh, to a very considerable extent in France up to then, is really starts frittering away because people don't know what he's after. They don't quite see what, where he's going. Does he want another purge? Of does he want to get rid of even his colleagues? Is he actually aiming for a a personal dictatorship on the lines of, or uh, well, probably people aren't thinking of obviously Hitler; they're thinking of Julius Caesar or, or Augustus uh, Caesar, because they're always very focused on what happened in the in antiquity. So this sort of puzzlement, I think, is uh, you've got a period of puzzlement about what Robespierre is up to. Uh, which has been going on for a, a month or 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 six six weeks or, or or so if we then fast forward to you know the previous day uh the previous day is absolutely crucial in uh, understanding what happened on the twenty uh, on the twenty seventh because what happens on that day after this period of absence Robespierre actually turns up at the uh convention. And launches into an incredibly long speech, rambling speech, which is very, very uh, sort of uh, inward looking, it's very narcissistic, it's very bitter, uh, it's very uh, repeating the Robespierre themes of the importance of incorruptibility, the importance of the people, etc., cetera, etc, cetera. but is seen as a very threatening letter. Uh, to many people uh, around the, uh, around, sitting around the convention hall and in, you know, in the government around the, uh, the table, uh, uh, the, in the offices of the Committee of Public Safety. And in fact, it is, it is so vehement, but also so vague, uh, that many, just about anyone in political life who feels that Roxbury has looked askance at them at any time over the previous couple of, uh, well, previous year or so, Feels them, you know, they're reaching for their collars. Actually, they're feeling pretty uncomfortable. They, they're thinking that he's actually going to launch uh, some sort of attack on them the next day. Now, we can talk a, a bit more about uh, about whether you know he was going, what he was intending to do. But the crucial thing is that his action on that day really gets together almost for the first time an organised opposition against him. He repeats that speech in the Jacobin Club in the evening. He actually personally attacks uh, uh, in his speech uh, one or two of his colleagues who are actually present in the uh, Jacobin Club. So people realise there's a massive collision coming at some stage in in the revolution. But one of the things that's really struck me in doing the research, and again it runs against what a lot of people have thought about the Ninth of Thermidor, is really people were not anticipating it. They knew there was a crisis in government they were very puzzled about Robespierre but but even people uh, you know his colleagues in the uh, in the committee of Public Safety are very nervous about attacking them because he is so popular you know they th- they see uh, Robespierre as uh, you know there's a, a recent his- history historian Antoine Litti in France who's written a very fascinating book on celebrity the emergence of pop you know the ideas of uh, celebrity that we have today he's like that he's not just famous he's a celebrity people are you know adulating him if you like seeing him, or, or or hating him of course as one does with uh, celebrities and his colleagues think well he is so popular that if we attract him in any way he has so much support in the convention seemingly he doesn't actually but people think he does uh, so much in the uh, city hall so much in the uh, in the in the local administration in Paris that they would risk their own lives in that way. So people have been holding back and just hoping they can negotiate with Robespierre. And then on the 8th of Thorn he makes this sort of very, uh, very wild speech in many ways, and people think we've got to act. And overnight, there's a s- mobilization, if you like. First of all, um, uh, some of the people who feel most threatened uh, by, uh, by uh, uh, Robespierre start going around uh, uh, to the home, private homes of um, many of the moderate deputies, and saying, look, we've got to get rid of Rothschild. He's, you know, he's, not, he's out of control. He's a loose cannon. You know, you, you think he's going to hit me tomorrow, but it'll be you the next day. And there's a sort of uh, alliance of the very, very frightened, which gets together very swiftly over over that night. And in the and within the uh, within the committee of public safety, even though when you look at what they actually do, it shows that they're still very, very nervous about. Belling the cat, you know, putting the bell around the cat, uh, if you like, because they're all fearful for, for, for their lives. So the eighth of Thermidor really does set up uh, the ninth of Thermidor, but it doesn't make its outcome clear. In fact, I, I, I say this in the, in the book, in some ways, if one were a betting man or woman uh, on the eighth of Thermidor, or even on the morning of the ninth of Thermidor, you say, well, it's going to all come down to today. Uh, which way is it going to go? You would probably think well, robsville would prevail you would think well okay he's got a lot of enemies now after yesterday but actually he's got a lot of support in the national convention he the mayor of paris the head of the city hall is uh his nominee the national guard very very important and we'll talk about that in a in a minute the commander there is his his personal nominee he's got a lot of support in the within the convention and he's got a lot of celebrity you know, so you think He's the guy who's gonna prevail rather than the rather than the convention. And it happens completely differently from what one might have predicted.
1: Yeah. Well let's 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 get to the day. Let's talk about so your book actually starts at midnight and you you go hour by hour. What are first, how does how does this day start for Robespierre at midnight? And then what are some of the more, more dramatic turns that this day takes?
0: Yeah. So I did make this decision after um after quite some time, I, I thought I would write a history of the day. But I, the decision to write it in this unusual way, where, as you say, I start at midnight and finish more or less about midnight, and have a bit of a uh, bit of chapter or so afterwards, just, just describing what what happened next, because I think with with a lot of histories of a short period of, of time, there is a, a tendency to produce a long sort of you know the context, the causes, the preconditions. And then you're looking at the aftermath and the consequences, and as a result, the, the history of the day first of all it gets squashed between these two things, but also it all looks predetermined because you've sort of explained what's going to ha- what's going to happen, even though the way in which you've explained it is that it's determined by what um, uh, by uh, by, uh, by what actually happened on the, on the day. So my idea was that basically to give this sort of a sense of indetermination, of uncertainty about the the issue of what would happen in the day, I should like try and put it down at the at the level of the people of Paris, if you like, what they were going through from midnight uh, through to the to 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 the, the, the end of the action, and so. Uh, in some ways, the outcome was determined by what happened actually on the day, which was a bit uncertain. You couldn't have predicted it, really, to start with. So I, I give that sort of sense by, by going from midnight onwards. And I try and give a sort of sense of the way in which uh, and the turning points within the day where things could have gone differently. So I start with midnight where the Committee of Public Safety is still in, uh, in session. They often work through uh, the night. No Robsville, but they know they're trying to work out what to happen on on the uh, next day. At the same time, you've got these deputies who feel very frightened for their lives going around trying to mobilize among the normal deputies of the uh, assembly. But at the same time, try and give a sense of the sleeping city. You know, the the city is asleep. uh, uh, At Le Al, the uh, marketplace, people start turning up from 3 a.m. or something like that. Uh, but, But, you know, it is a city which is not anticipating... A dramatic day. The following day, most of them know there's probably some stuff going on in the government. But you know that there has been stuff before. Why should uh, the next day be uh, be uh, very different? And and that rem- the people of Paris remain in that sort of state really until the afternoon. But what happens the, by the morning is that the person who uh, has been most prominent in going round and mobilizing support. Uh, within Paris, within the, um, among the deputies is a man called Tallien. Tallien is someone who Robespierre seems to hate for reasons which have to do with his politics, but also his private life as well. Uh, Tallien's mistress, uh, is, uh, imprisoned more or less under Robespierre's orders, a couple of, uh, about a month or so before the revolution. She's probably going to go to the revolutionary tribunal. There is this story which I tell in the, in the, in the book that, um, uh, the pre- previous day, uh, she um, writes uh, from prison uh, that she's been told she's going to go to the Revolutionary Tribunal. She says, uh, "I had a dream last night in which I was free and that Robert Spear was overthrown." But of course, that's never going to happen because I don't have a lover who will stop it. Well, actually, she does have a lover who will stop it because he—he what well, he is absolutely key figure, uh, and he's not in touch with um, the government, with the Committee of Public Safety. He's got, just got a, enough support he thinks within the convention to make a difference. And he marches into the assembly, stops the business of the affair and attacks Robespierre, attacks his ally Mm. Saint-Just, attacks uh, that faction within government. And what happens is very extraordinary, actually, because at first you see people realizing, wow, something's going on here, but they don't seem to know what it is. They're sort of puzzled. But um, Tania has got some of his supporters from the previous night to make to to agree that whenever he says something, they clap. So they will start clapping furiously. And then you've got this sort of contagion within the assembly where everyone realizes, yeah, Robespierre is being attacked. And actually, we have got fed up with him. And he was going too far. And he does seem to have been uh, aiming at a dictatorship. And so over that late part of the morning into the early afternoon, they basically launch an attack on Robespierre in the uh, assembly. He's arrested. He and uh, about four or five of his allies within the assembly including his brother are, are are arrested and they send them out about four o'clock in the afternoon uh to prisons throughout Paris. they don't want to keep them together because they send them to separate uh prisons now at that stage the government and the national assembly think well that's it job done you know we'll go we'll go out and have dinner now you know we've been holding on to our stomachs for a, an hour or two let's go and have a really good meal and they do and and uh The Committee of Public Safety is still turning business over, but no one realises, really, that down the road, as I say, about a mile and a half to the east in the City Hall, the news of Robespierre's arrest has come in, and the Mayor, the Commander of the National Guard, uh, and a couple of other key individuals, realise that they have got to stop the National Convention. And what they try and do is to mobilise support by writing out uh, and by trying to mobilise, by just going out in the streets, uh, people to come to the city hall with the idea of a major sort of insurrectionary force to be gathered there to move through the streets of Paris on the, on the national uh, on, on the national convention. Now, about seven o'clock uh, in the evening, the National Assembly goes back into uh, into session. In fact, at first, there's very few people there because most people think it's just going to be routine uh, uh, business, and in fact, uh, they're very surprised to hear what's going on. We have an account, one deputy who's actually having one, he's having his dinner uh, over in uh, the other side of the river uh, in the uh, seven, what's now the 7th arrondissement uh, in a f- fine restaurant there. And he's uh, sort of tucking in there. And he suddenly hears someone going through the street saying, Rob Spears being arrested. Everyone come to the city hall. You know. So, so he suddenly realised things have got out of hand. He goes back. Basically, the National Assembly uh, starts forming uh, in that, uh, uh, that evening and trying to sort of Find out what is going on, you know, in Paris. They have to. They realize insurrection is going on, but they just don't know what's what's really happening out on the streets. So you've got this very strange period uh, going on, where where um, the the, uh, the city hall is mobilizing, and for an hour or two, an hour or two, this convention does not know what the heck is going on. And indeed, what happens about eight between eight and nine o'clock. Um, one of the leaders out at the commune, out at the city hall, takes a big force of uh, men, uh, about 2,000 men, national guardsmen and they walk to the national convention. And they want to actually, they've heard Robespierre is arrested, and they want actually to to free him. Actually, Robespierre by then has been sent out, so they don't do that. But they are honestly within a hairbreadth of winning the day because uh, the national assembly, the convention, is completely undefended. Uh, for reasons which historians still uh, dispute uh, the uh, commander of the national guard says okay we're not going to do this we're going to go back in an orderly way to the city hall and we're going to sort out sort out the you know proper uh strategy on on, on what 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 to do and at that moment well the, the, they realize how incredibly lucky they've been the man sitting in the chair of uh uh, presiding over the assembly says to his colleagues he says we've got to die like Romans now you know we're going to we're going to be massacred uh but suddenly they, they hear the forces going away uh and they're not they, they basically what they do is they order the arrest of all these leaders within the municipality and the arrest of uh of Rochevere and shortly afterwards they, they declare uh, that they are outlaws if they're outlaws that means they don't need, need trial they will just be placed under arrest and can be executed They've got to get hold of these people. Uh, so in a way, you know, they, they realize they're in a bad state. And they've also realized they're in a particularly bad state because news is coming in that far from being in prison, Speer has been turned away from the prison to which he's been sent. And it's, uh, actually, he will be making his way gradually. We'll get there by 10 o'clock to the city hall. So you've got this you know, very forcible uh, sort of situation. And it's, again, one of the key moments, and it's about 9 o'clock at night, is that in the convention, they realize that they're in this terrible, terrible situation. Uh, and they realize that the commander of the National Guard is on the other other side. Uh, and they make a decision which is it, it, completely unpredictable. No time in the revolution has there, any National Assembly done this. They basically appoint one of their members, a guy called Barras, uh, to be the commander of all the armed forces in uh, Paris. They give him twelve adjuncts, and they say organize and basically what he does he he and his adjuncts uh, go out get on their horses essentially, and go through the streets of Paris, where already the, the uh, city uh, the city hall has been trying to mobilize people and say, "Get their narrative across Robespierre is an outcott. He's he 's been conspiring against the national assembly he wants to be a, a dictator you 've got to support the rule of law you 've got to support the revolution. If you don't, everything that you fought for will, will be lost. And basically, over the night, overnight, you've got this extraordinary situation where normal Parisians are in the in the streets, or you know, in their local, national, local sectional assembly, or whatever, trying to work out what's going on, realizing. They've got to make a really important decision on which the fate of the revolution might depend and their own fate as well. Because if Rugby wins, you know, anyone who opposed him the previous day will be, be up for the, uh, with not the chop, but at least, uh, for imprisonment and the other way as well. So what I try to do in my, in my book is to give a sense of that sort of existential choice that people have had. It's incredibly important political choice that people have to, have to make at that moment, one way or the other and to understand why. And to understand why, you basically find people sticking up for the rule of law, for the National Convention, for all the revolution has done so far, for the fact that the revolution seems to be winning, uh, winning the war. And they reject Robespierre, who, despite everything that he's been, been, you know, been very strong in, has puzzled people and seems to be acting in a very uh, irrational way. Uh, and by, by just after midnight, actually, uh, the forces of the um, uh, uh, of the convention, and we'll talk a bit about the forces maybe next. But uh, are surrounding the city hall. They move in on the city hall. They uh, go up to collector Robsbeer in uh, one of the rooms there. For re- for things we still don't know actually what happens exactly. But Robsbier is shot, possibly by himself, by possibly by someone else in the. But he's not shot and killed. He's shot in the jaw which means that the, this man who's been the ideologist, the great speaker of the French Revolutionary Assemblies is silenced for the rest of his life. Uh, and the next day he's identified by the uh, by the uh, authorities, by the Revolutionary Tribunal. He's taken out and, uh, and executed. Yeah. <clears throat> wow.
1: <laughs> well, first, thank you for that. A couple of things come to my mind. First, you're the the uh in the Napoleon movie they took the liberty of deciding he shot himself so that's uh that's what people will see um but second what what i think is so fascinating about this i mean there's there's so much to say about about all the events that unfolded but the people themselves who as you said Robespierre is a very popular figure super popular and for for people to turn on him personally, but to not turn on some of these other principles, I found fascinating. Why do you think that? Why do you think most people chose to stay true to the the principles of the revolution as opposed to the man Robespierre?
0: Well, I think the thing to um, bear in mind on this is that, uh, and we haven't talked about it uh, uh, much, but especially for. Uh, uh, war books uh, uh, seminar. We we should do because this is a day which is um, you know there's, there's there's fighting but no deaths. There's hardly anyone apart from the people who actually go to the to the um, to the guillotine the next day. It isn't a bloody day like like 14th of July or uh, 1789 or whatever. There's there's basically a sort of potential for incredible violence for a sort of explosion of the violence, but it doesn't quite. Uh, it's not quite triggered off, uh, uh, if you like, but the other thing is, it's a it's a day which is done without any military um, uh, intervention, because all the armies are, you know, day day and a half, two days, more than that, away from the from the front. Because the army has got to be fighting the rest of Europe, that they, they don't have uh, a sort of uh, uh, a military force within within Paris, and uh, in fact. Paris is defended by its own people, by the National Guard. So the National Guard was introduced, in fact, in 1789. In, initially, it was only sort of propertied individuals, people of uh, substance who were allowed to be members of the National Guard. But as the revolution radicalizes in 1792, basically every adult male has a duty to be part of the National Guard. You can get exemption under certain circumstances, etc., etc. But basically, you are if you're an adult male, you are a member of the national guard and you have to do guard duty a few times every every month you, for big occasions you'll be called in uh, uh, as well and and essentially what what is going on in this sort of face off between the convention and the uh, city hall is the attempt to get hold of the people of Paris through the national guard. They also write to the uh, the local administrative um, the sectional sort of like parish assemblies, if you like, uh, trying to get them mobilized, but actually getting the the national guardsmen, the commanders of the national guard in each of the forty-eight sections within Paris on site. Each of them will have a large number of companies, some of which will be on active duty on that day, but all of which, if the toxin and the, the drum is sounded, have to turn up and uh, and, uh, and 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 um, uh, and so be prepared for for uh, for action. They try to get them sort of mobilised, so they're the key, really. And I think the National Guard is something which historians have always tended to neglect uh, in uh, looking at the day, because it's it is essentially the people of Paris through the National Guard who, who who win the day, and they essentially follow the orders. They 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 are, they've been trained, you know, to to be great. Um, supporters of the revolution they believe in the right to insurrection and it's there in the constitution when when the government's Going badly, but they don't really think that time has come in some way. So it's a very um, a, a Loyalist if you like um, uh, Movement within the National National Guard, uh, which actually uh, makes the day they prevail
1: Yeah. well first Collins has been a a wonderful interview. My, uh, my kind of last question here for you is, I'm curious what you think after all the research you've done and obviously spending a great deal of time in these 24 hours. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how the events that unfolded in this day, what lessons we have to learn in our present day about how all this went down and, and how Black. Rick year's downfall came so swiftly.
0: Yeah, you know i think we're, we're fine as historians when we're writing about history we're less good about bringing it up to date or or, or making it uh make it real or or relevant if you like for the for, for the present but i mean i a number of people when i've spoken about this this was not something which even occurred to me when i was doing the research because it happened uh, uh before it but um the events of 6th of january in the united states were, were, were brought to my attention on a number of occasions uh because it was it, people argued that essentially you've got someone uh, in power in a position of authority, a leader of the executive, obviously in the United States, claiming to represent to represent uh, uh, through his supporters the uh, the people uh, acting against the uh, existing legislature. So I, I you know I don't really want to get into that I don't you know comparison between Donald Trump and Robespierre, I don't think we'll get very far quite honestly uh, but but I think you know that that, that there are other striking uh, moments as well but I think in terms of writing contemporary history writing writing about events in the recent past it is helpful to have this I think the, the type of approach which I've I've, I've tried out you know, to get get in, if you like, and not to see everything in terms of structural long-term effects, playing themselves out, if you like, but to see the element of contingency, of chance, of just you know, anything happening, of serendipity, in some ways, operating uh, uh, in, in, in politics, and, and in a way, if there's a moral problem, to be always prepared for that.
1: Yeah, well... Colin, if people want to stay in touch with your work, are you on social media? How can people stay in touch with what you're writing about and what you're doing?
0: Well, I hope they would. I'm I'm actually, um, I've just completed a book, actually, which is okay. uh, on, uh, it's uh, the uh, edition of a correspondence which a very aged and very counter-revolutionary duchess wrote about the French Revolution through, from the middle of Paris, moreover. Uh, for the most part, in the early part of the 1790s, uh, and I'm just in the process of writing a, a sh- short history of France, a little condensed history of France from earlier, earliest times. Uh, if you go on the website at um, uh, Queen Mary uh, University of London, you'll see what I'm up to
1: to a large part. Yeah, oh, that's great. Well, a prolific writer. You've got two more, <laughs> two yeah, more books uh, after this this latest one uh, already already in the pipeline. Yeah, thank you. Well, Colin Jones, The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris. Go buy a copy. Go check it out from your library. What an interesting tale that you've told here, Colin. And uh, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you. Thanks for you.
1: Thank you.